Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right. Welcome back to Sunday School. It has been a very long year hiatus, so it's good to be back. Um, This is the first lesson on what I'm anticipating is probably going to be eight lessons, give or take, and we're going to be covering the subject or the topic of church unity. This first lesson, however, is, even though it's going to, you'll see how it ties into church unity, but in this first lesson, we're going to be concentrating on the idea of unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. And specifically, as as it relates to the Trinity. So this first lesson is really important because it's foundational. This is the foundation we're going to use to build upon in the subsequent lessons where we look more specifically at the broader subject of church unity, okay? Go ahead and grab a hand out there. So today we're gonna look at the concept of unity in diversity as it relates to the Trinity. If we just consider the word Trinity, just in that word, you see the concept of unity in diversity. Tri means three, so plurality. Tri-unity, so it's unity and diversity right there in the word Trinity. And this theme of unity and diversity can be seen throughout the Bible, and so, It's of immense importance. Consider, for example, the creation. Again, just think of the word universe. Like Trinity, it conveys that idea of unity and diversity. In fact, literally, it does that. Universe, uni, unity, in diversity. It's the same thing with our our English word university, right? If you go to a university, there's a diversity of subjects. But there should be some unifying factor something that unifies all these diverse subjects. And so that's where we get the word university from. Now when we're speaking of our own universe, obviously it's made up of many different elements and they can form into liquids and solids and gases. And yet with all this diversity of elements, we still have a singular space-time continuum. So unity and diversity, but then Even if we zoom in to our own planet, planet Earth, and we consider the life on our planet, there's tremendous biodiversity, is there not? Tremendous biodiversity. Whether we're talking about plants or animals, ourselves, the microbial world, tremendous diversity, and yet it's all templated on 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 a very similar pattern, namely genetics of some kind. Nucleic acids, right? Either RNA or DNA. So there's still some kind of genetic unifying factor that leads to all this biodiversity. So unity and diversity. And we should expect this because when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see it right there in the text. In Genesis chapter 1, if we look at verses 11 through 12, God says, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So when he's talking about creating plant life, plants, plurality, diversity, and fruit trees, plural, again, plurality, diversity, and yet each is made according to a kind. So we see a unity there in the midst of the diversity. And this pattern just continues, right? As, he, as we see in Genesis 1, verses 20 and 21, He creates the fish, he creates the birds. Much diversity there, and yet each one is created according to its own kind. So unity and diversity. (laughs) Then he creates all the land animals. Genesis 1, verses 24 through 25. He makes the livestock, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. So again, we see this theme of unity in diversity. And it doesn't stop there with the lower creatures. When we get to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, those are those classic verses where God is creating man 
to bear his image. And this is very interesting. When you read verse 27 of chapter 1 of Genesis, it says this, As the image of God, he created him. As the image of God, he, God, created him, man. But then it says, male and female, he created them. Well, which one is it? Is it him? That's a singular pronoun. Or is it them? That's a plural pronoun. Is it singular or plural? It's both. It's unity and diversity. Even in this own room, we see this, right? Every one of us is a unique person. There's so much diversity here. There's maleness, there's femaleness. And yet, we're all humans. We're all human beings. There's a unifying factor there. As C.S. Lewis would call us, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So it should make sense that we as image bearers reflect this unity and diversity that comes from our triune God, where there is unity and diversity. But we could continue on. If we go to Genesis chapter 2 and we look at verse 24, we see the first marriage. And what does it say there? It says, they, plural, shall become one flesh. The two, plural, the diversity, is unified, forms a union. Unity and diversity, yet again. Consider Christ. Christ is one person, yet has two natures. Human nature, divine nature, the God-man. In John chapter 1, uh, the very opening of that gospel, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the Word, Christ was God, is God, divine nature. But then a few verses later, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, took on human nature. So divine nature, human nature, one person, unity and diversity. <clears throat> the same concept is there with the church, unity and diversity. 1 Corinthians 12 says that each one of us are members of a single body, one body. So many members, diversity, plurality, one body, unity. Even if we look at the Bible itself, the Bible is a book of books. Many books, 66 different books. And yet it is one canon. It is one uniform revelation. Unity and diversity. It was composed by many different authors. And each one of those authors was his own personality. Much diversity there in the writing. Yet they were all inspired, they were all carried along by one spirit. Inspired by one spirit, many personalities, so <coughs> unity and diversity. So we see this again and again and again. So very important. Now, when we're considering unity and diversity as it relates to the Trinity, sometimes when we think about the Trinity, we, we think that it's a problem that needs to be solved. But I would submit to you that the Trinity is not a problem that needs to be solved. It's actually a problem solver. And I'll tell you why. If we consider polytheism, polytheism is the idea that there are many different gods. And there is some truth in polytheism, actually. Not much, but there's some truth. Namely, that there must be plurality of deity. There must be plurality of deity in order for deity to understand relationship, relationality. So in that sense, there is a truth in polytheism, but the problem with polytheism is that it overemphasizes diversity. And it overemphasizes diversity to the, to the, at the expense of unity. And in doing so, it introduces sin. And what I mean by that is if you look at any polytheistic culture or religion where there's many different gods, you quickly find out that there's good gods and there's bad gods and every god has his or her own agenda and there's, there could become tribal warfare over these gods. So there is sin that's introduced because 
There's all this diversity of God, but there's nothing that unifies. There's no unity. So it's, it's too much diversity at the expense of unity. But then pantheism is the, is the opposite of that. With pantheism, everything is God. Okay, so it's overemphasizing unity at the expense of diversity. With pantheism, there's no creator-creature distinction. There's no distinctions really at all, because everything is the same. Everything is God. <clears throat> With pantheism, everything is a manifestation or an emanation of the divine, including every one of us. And so there's, there's so much unity in that sense that there's no diversity. There's no distinctions that can be made. Now again, as with polytheism, pantheism does contain some truth, namely that there must be unity in deity, right? With polytheism, we realize, well, there has to be some kind of plurality when we're talking about deity, otherwise there could be no relationality. With pantheism, it, it, at least it's correct in the sense that there has to be something that unifies when we're talking about deity. And it also would say that deity is of one essence and that deity is omnipresent. So in that sense, it's correct because when we, when we think of our own triune God, the true God, right? He's omnipresent and he is of the same essence. So that, that's true, but the problem with pantheism is that like polytheism, it introduces sin. It introduces sin. So... How does it do that? Well, think about it this way. If everything in the world is God, and if there is an abundance of sin in the world, which there is, then God is abundantly sinful. So you see the problem. Here with pantheism, we would overemphasize unity and there's no diversity. There's no distinctions where the creator can be sinless and the creature can be sinful. Thank you. You can't have those distinctions because everything is deity. All right, so that's why I say that it's only the Christian notion of the triune God that provides a perfect harmonious theology of unity in diversity. And not only a harmonious theology, but a harmonious cosmology and anthropology as well. So when we look to the universe, we should expect to find unity in diversity because it's going to reflect the unity and diversity of the God that made it. And the same thing in his image bearers. We should expect to find unity in diversity because it reflects the God whose image we bear. All right, having briefly introduced the idea of unity and diversity, let's now develop this concept a little bit further by considering three important truths about the Trinity. We're gonna consider three important truths about the Trinity. We're going to spend most of our time on the first truth, and hopefully we'll have time to just kind of rush through the last two. But this first one is critical. The first important truth about the Trinity is that God is a personal, relational being. God is a personal, relational being. God is not a singular, solitary person. God is not a singular, solitary person. When we think about Judaism and Islam, in those religions, their God is a singular, solitary person, a, an eternal monad. So think about Judaism. They, they worship Yahweh, but it's not the Yahweh that we worship. They do not acknowledge that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So they deny the second person of the Trinity, and they make no distinction between the Spirit or the Father. In Judaism, it's just one God, a single solitary person. Same thing with Islam. With Islam, it's Allah, and that's it, one person. An eternal soul existent with no one to relate to or to distinguish himself from, or to love. One person alone in the vastness of eternity. But this notion of God is not sustainable. 
It's not sustainable. A God who knows nothing of love or relationships cannot create something that he himself is not. He cannot create a creature that can know of things that he is ignorant of, namely love and relationships. Does that make sense? In order to love, there must be an object that you are delighting in, something other than yourself. In order to relate or to have relationship, there must be someone else or something else that you're relating to. But if you are the single solitary person, you, how can you possibly know what love and relationship is? Now, maybe someone could argue, well, maybe Allah you know, could theorize what love and relationship is and then could create creatures and could then form relationships with those creatures and learn how to love them. All right, well, that's problematic because God, by definition, is omniscient. If you know everything, how can you learn? That's no God at all. So again, we see that the, the Christian God, our triune God, is not a problem to be solved. It's a problem solver. Polytheism overemphasizes diversity at the expense of unity. Pantheism, the reverse. And even other monotheistic religions, where it's a single solitary person, is problematic. It is only this perfect balance of unity and diversity that we see in our triune God that solves these problems. So hopefully you're seeing that there's a, a superiority in our God because he is the true God. All right. <clears throat> Furthermore, the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is infinitely superior because it means that God was never alone. God was never alone. Within himself, he always had the basis for fellowship and community and love. You cannot have a God who is personal if he is the only person there is. You can only be personal if there is some other person to relate to, as we already said. Someone to be with or towards. Someone to communicate with. Someone to love. And I, th I think we see a great example of this again in John's Gospel at the opening, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of the Son, right? Second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was with God. So he's referring to the Father there. The Son has always been with the Father. So there's diversity. The Word, Christ, was God. Or is God, right? So he's, as the Son, he's with the Father, but he still is God, just as the Father is God. In fact, in the Greek, the word there for with is, is pros, or pros. And it means towards. It means face to face. The idea that John is communicating there is that the Son and the Father are co-equal. They've always been face to face with each other. The first and second person of the Trinity have always been equally God. So we see this unity and diversity, and we see that there's always been a relationship there between the Son and the Father. And don't forget the Spirit, too. So there's been a relationship in the Godhead always. Thomas Watson has said that the nature of love consists in delighting in its object. And I really like that. Because I think it's true. The nature of love is to delight in an object. Now, if that follows, then we can say interpersonal love, sorry, we can infer that the nature of personal love consists in delighting in the object of another person. Interpersonal love necessitates relationships among differing persons. And it is for this reason that it can only be said of the triune God of the Bible that God is love. In 1 John 4, 8. Think about that. It's only our triune God that it could be said that God is love. Why? Because love demands, personal love demands personal relationship. And only our God can do that because he's three persons in one being. He's always been in relationship 
with persons. So it can only be said of our God that God is love. You cannot say that of Allah. You cannot say that of the God of Judaism, right? So the idea of God as being triune or pluriform, it doesn't complicate the idea of God's unity. It deeply enriches it. Furthermore, the fact that there is this eternal fellowship of love within the Godhead has profound implications with regard to our understanding of human nature and human society. So anthropology and sociology. It's going to profoundly impact that. Why? Because we are made as God's image, which means that we are made as the image of a God who has witness at the core of his being. We were made to reflect that, that witness. <clears throat> at the very heart of God, there are relationships, and the closest analogy we can find to those inter-Trinitarian relationships is the interpersonal relationships between human beings. So if we want to understand those interpersonal relationships that exist among the Trinity, we somewhat get an idea of that by just understanding our own interpersonal relationships. Again, there's that father-son relationship in the Trinity. Well, we all come from a family. We all have familial relationships. So that gives us some insight into the father-son relationship of the Trinity, right? Living face-to-face -face with others and reaching out towards others is an essential part of our humanity. Living face-to-face -face with others, again, I'm reminded of John 1, the face-to-face -to -face towardness of the Son and the Father, right? We were made to reflect that. So living face-to-face -face with others and reaching out towards others is an essential part of our humanity, and it is what defines us as image-bearers. And it, it, it makes me think of like this last week and all of the love and the charity that has been shown amongst our body to those who are in need. People going out of their way to get firewood or generators or to fix pipes or, I mean, we stayed with the Dice family for the whole week because we didn't have power or water. And that's what it's all about. That's what makes us human is that face-to-face -face showing love one to another. That's how we reflect the triune God. It's having those relationships, building those relationships, fostering those relationships. This is what it means to be human. And that's why when I look back on this last year, it's so devastating because we haven't been around each other as much. We were not meant to social distance all the time and to cover our faces and to basically treat each other like we're germs. We were not made to do that. We were made to be social, to reflect the God who is social. It's part of being human. It's intimately part of being human. We could say of God that he is persons in relationship. God is persons in relationship. And that is exactly what we were made to be, persons in relationship, just like him. <clears throat> We could say that the Trinity is a divine community. Or we could say that the Godhead is a society of persons. Right? So if there is a society of persons in the Godhead and a community there and relationship of persons there, that explains why we are that way. We were made to reflect that. And that's why we intuitively form societies and communities and form relationships. It's who we are. As his unique image bearers, we are intuitively communal. We are by nature social creatures. In fact, we find our identity in our relationships. We find our identity in our relationships. That word identity has become a big word, I think, in our culture. You think of like identity politics. You think of you know, people finding their identity in their ethnicity, you know, their skin tone or uh, their cultural background or they find their identity in their sexual orientation or their gender or whatever. No. Biblically speaking, that is not where we find our identity. 
Biblically speaking, identity is all about the relationships that we look to for our security and our significance. It's about relationships. This is a key, key concept. So if you've tuned out, try to tune back in. (coughs) Identity has to do with the relationships that we look to to give us security and significance. And this concept of identity having to do with relational security and significance, it's of immense importance. Our identity is inextricably linked to those relationships that we look to for security and significance. Because we've been made as image bearers of God, we can't help but find our identity in our relationships, to find security and significance in our relationships. Even within the Godhead, even within the Godhead, we see identity being established by way of relationship. For example, the Father would not be the Father apart from the Son. The Son is what gives the Father his identity as Father, and vice versa. If there were no Son, there would be no Father. A Father in relation to whom? A Father in relation to whom? See, again, it's forming that relationship. It's identifying the persons of that relationship. So the son is necessary to identify the father as the father, and vice versa. And consequently, then, what is true of the Trinity is going to be true of us. We were uniquely made to reflect that triune God. So we can't help but find our identity in our relationships. Individual people are never people outside a web of relationships. None of us is our own person outside of some web or network of relationships. And this means that the search for personal identity is a function of the web of relationships in which each individual is engaged. We take our clues as to who we are from the other people who speak into our lives. We take our clues as to who we are from the other people who speak into our lives. Now, our own individual voice is undoubtedly part of that identity-forming conversation, but it's only one voice among many. So throughout your life, there is this running conversation that is taking place of, who am I? Why am I here? What is my significance? Where do I find security? Right? That's identity. Identity has to do with finding security and significance. And so people speak into our lives. Who is Breck? Who is Breck Wheelock? Well, I found much of my security and significance growing up in my parents. And others who spoke into my life. My siblings, teachers, coaches, friends. And this is constantly taking place throughout the course of our lives. We get married and our spouse, our children if we have children, coworkers, strangers, people speaking into our lives, helping us understand who we are, giving us a certain sense of significance and security. Right? And my own voice is part of that, but it's not the only voice. There's many other voices that are speaking in to help me identify myself as, as who I am. And what's the most important voice that we need speaking into us to give us security and significance? God, right? Three persons, namely, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For those of us who are joined to Christ, those are the voices we want speaking to us most often to give us that significance and that security that we're longing for. All right, so this idea then that personal identity is formed by way of relationships in which an individual is engaged, this runs completely contrary to the contemporary notion that personal identity is found in peculiar characteristic traits, such as ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender. That's what the world would have us to believe. You want to know who you are? You want to know why, you know, where your significance comes from and your security? Look to your ethnic background. Look to your sexual orientation. Look to your gender or something else. That's never, going to, that's never going to solve the problem that we all have of who, who am I? What is my identity? Those things are never gonna give you that security and that significance that you're longing for. 
The only thing that's going to give you that security and that significance is a restored relationship with your Creator by being joined to Christ. We are all born into this world with an identity crisis, thanks to Adam, right? And the only person who can solve that identity crisis, the only person who has solved that identity crisis, is the second Adam. And so if we are joined to him, then that relationship is restored. And now I can truly know who I am. My significance and my security can be found again by being conformed more and more to that image. So you will never find it in anything outside of Christ. So the biblical account tells us that human identity is found in relationships, and it explains why there is this intrinsic desire for fulfillment, this yearning for completion that draws human beings into relationships. All of us have that. All of us are born into this world with, with a feeling of, I'm not complete. I, I'm not fulfilled. There's, there's something that's lacking. And it draws us into relationships to search for it, to search, what is not, search for what is not there. Why? Because that's the way God made us. Now, there are those who would attempt to deny this. There, would be, there are those who try to deny that yearning for completion by seeking out human relationships. There are those who would prefer to live in quarantine all their lives, to be isolationists, to be an island unto themselves, to, to have minimal relationships with others. But what you'll notice with people like that, what happens over time is their soul shrivels up and wastes away. Because that's not the way we were meant to be. They become cantankerous curmudgeons. <laughs> they become crotchety sourpusses, cranky old grumps. Over time, the more you isolate yourself and, and act like a recluse. Why? Because that's not how God designed us. It's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Who said that? God said that. Our Creator said that. It's not good that man should be alone. And He was referring to Adam. When did He say that? Before the fall or after the fall? Before the fall. What's the implication then? Loneliness is not a result of the fall. Loneliness was there before the fall. Loneliness is not sinful. Loneliness is meant to prompt us to go seek out relationships, which is exactly what we were designed to do. Even in a sinless, pristine world, Adam was lonely before Eve. One of the reasons why God had Adam name all the animals was for him to kind of reach that conclusion. As he's naming all these animals, he's like, you know, there's always at least two here. The same kind. You know, they're different, but they're of the same kind. Where's my different of the same kind? Where's my complementary companion? That was precisely what one of the things that God wanted Adam to realize. And then at the end, he, he forms Eve out of the man, presents Eve to Adam, and what is Adam's response? At last! <laughs> bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now I can have a relationship with one of my own kind. Someone who's different and yet the same. Now, what's really interesting about this is that when God said it's not good that man should be alone before he had created Eve, Adam wasn't alone in the sense that he had God. Isn't that enough? Well, yes, but also in another sense, no. Which is why God said it's not good that man should be alone. He created man to reflect himself. And within the Trinity, there are persons that are of the same kind, right? The same essence, the same being. 
to relate to one another. And man needed that too. And that's why he created Eve. So all this to say that loneliness was present even before the fall. And it was meant to draw us into those human relationships because this is how we reflect our triune God. Now on this side of the fall, nothing has changed. In fact, it's been enhanced because of sin. Right? It's only been enhanced, this longing to find fulfillment and completion in relationship. Why would that be? Well, because when Adam fell, now all of us are conceived in sin. And the fundamental relationship that we have as creatures to our Creator is not right. In fact, we are at enmity with each other. We are born into this world at enmity with God, and He is at enmity with us. That's, to put it mildly, a strained relationship. And it's the most important relationship that we need in, in terms of finding our identity, right? But not only that, we have problems forming relationships with one another because of sin. So even though we long for that and we try, it's hard because of sin. We are cynical. We don't trust each other because we have sin in our heart and we know there's sin in everyone else's heart. And so we don't, it's hard for us to be fully honest and transparent with each other. We, we try to find ways to cover ourselves up with fig leaves because of sin. So sin has exacerbated the problem. Again, the, the primary relationship that we need in terms of our identity is that between ourselves and God. But unfortunately, that relationship can only be restored in Christ. And so, when we're born into this world, we spend our lives running around looking for leaves to cover up the nakedness that we innately feel in our hearts. We look in all the wrong places for the security and significance that we intuitively know is lacking. It's not there. We look in all the wrong places because, as Scripture tells us, no one searches after God. No, not one. But that's the, only, that's the only one who can solve the problem for us. But no one searches for that. So we look to other things to give us that security and that significance, but nothing else will. It's only in Christ, again, that we can have our identity restored. You know, when, we, when I think of Christ on the cross, when he became sin, who knew no sin, and the wrath of God is being poured out on him, and he cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it speaks to this. As a human, right, he was fully human, he had been forsaken. He had been forsaken from mankind, from the Jews, from the Gentiles, even his own disciples denied him and left him. So he had been forsaken by men, and now the only relationship that he could count on, the relationship that he had always had, that communion with the Father and the Spirit, was broken because he's on the cross. He, he became sin, and God cannot look upon sin. So the Father and the Spirit turned their back. He was forsaken. And he cries out in agony because we were meant to be relational. And he's crying out, where's this relationship that I've always had? It's gone. I'm utterly alone. And that is a glimpse of hell. Imagine hell. And that is what, we will, that is what you will feel if you go to hell. Utterly forsaken. Crying out for that security and that significance, longing for relationship, but you've been forsaken. You've been forsaken by the most important relationship of all, that to God and to, and to everyone else. We find our true identity in relation to God, in relationship with Him. And we can have a relationship with God through the atoning work of Christ, Precisely because God is relational and personal by nature. He is triune. 
I think one of the most amazing verses with regard to God being personal and relational is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read uh, verse 4. And Peter says here that he has granted to us his precious, precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? That we become partakers of the divine nature? Does that mean we become God? No. I think what he's talking about here is that we become partakers of the divine nature which is personal and relational. We, we get integrated into that. The word there for partakers is the Greek word koinonos, which indicates a participant who mutually belongs and shares fellowship, a joint participant. That word koinonos is where we get the more familiar word koinonia, which means fellowship. And it's a fellowship that stresses relationship, koinonia. So what Peter is saying there is that we get to be in fellowship with this interpersonal, interrelational, Trinitarian God. I think John 17 also captures this. John 17, verses 20 through 23, which I didn't put in the notes, but... John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Christ, where he is praying on behalf of his disciples, and then he kind of switches gears and says, not only for them, but also for everyone who is going to benefit from the word that they preach, which means all of us. Right? So he's praying for everyone. And what, what does he pray? In verses 20 through 23, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, all of us, that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, even as we, plural, diversity, are one, unity. I in them and you in me. So again, the Son, you in me, you the Father in me, the Son, and I the Son in them, so that they can become partakers of our interpersonal, interrelational, Trinitarian fellowship, koinonia, that we've always had. I want them to be part of that. I want them to experience that. That's amazing. The only begotten Son, because of His work, we can be adopted as sons and daughters, right? We then get adopted into the family that has always existed of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It is because of that that we can have the spirit of adoption that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We become integrated into that in a way that no other creature is. Even the angels, are, they can't call God Father the way that we can. Christ, did, as it says in Hebrews 2, Christ did not come to save angels. He didn't take on the form of angels to save angels. He became flesh and blood for us. I wish we could go off on that, but hopefully you're seeing how amazing this is, that God is personal and relational. And we were made to reflect that. All right. With the time that probably doesn't remain, um, let's move on to the second truth that we're going to consider about the Trinity. The second truth is that God is both one and three. God is both one and three. So, as we've already noted, there is within the Godhead unity and diversity. God is one being in three persons. The fancy way of saying this is that God is one essence in three subsistences. But I don't find that all that helpful to me. God is one being in three persons. And this is not a contradiction. 
Okay, the law of non-contradiction states that A and non-A cannot both be true in the same sense at the same time. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that God is one being and three beings. We're not saying that he's A and not A at the same time in the same way. That would be a contradiction. Nor are we saying that God is one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. No, we're saying that God is one being, three persons. So that is not a contradiction. Consider the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We are instructed to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a single name here. It doesn't say go and baptize in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, in the name, the singular name. We do not baptize in three names, but one. And what is that name? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are not three names for God. Even less are they the names of three distinct gods. No, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the one name for the one God who is our God and our Savior in three different ways. When we say that the Son is God, we're not saying that He is a different God from God the Father. We're not saying that He's an additional God. We are saying that He is one and the same God as God the Father. As He Himself says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So you cannot add them up. It's not... God the Father plus God the Son plus God the Holy Spirit. The plus doesn't apply. It's more a matter of multiplication than of addition. It's not one plus one plus one equals three. It's more one times one times one equals one. He is the same God thrice over. Again, God is one being in three persons, and there is within the Godhead a perfect balance between the one and the many. There's not a tyranny of the oneness that would disallow self-expression on the part of the many, nor is there a selfish individuality on the part of the many that would act out of harmony with the one. In other words, there's no tug of war that's going on between the persons of the Trinity, where one person is trying to go his own way and is trying to drag the other two along with him. No, there's, there's, com there's complete unity there. But there's not so much unity that there's no individual expression either. It's a perfect balance between the one and the many. All right, finally, the final truth that we'll look at today, the three persons of the Trinity willingly and lovingly operate according to an authority structure. The three persons of the Trinity willingly and lovingly operate according to an authority structure. The Father sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. 1 John 4.14 is one of a number of verses we could cite, but it says there that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. The Father sends the Son. We never, ever read of the Son sending the Father. Similarly, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never sends the Father or the Son. John 14, 26, Jesus is speaking and he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it is the Father who sends the Spirit. But then in the following chapter, John 15, verse 26, Jesus then says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, when the... When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So there we see that Jesus also sends the Spirit. So both the Father and the Son send the Spirit, never the other way around. So from these verses, and there are many others, we see that there is an authority structure within the Trinity. The Son willingly submits to and testifies of the Father. John 5.19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And again, John 12, 49, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me, again, the Father sends the Son, the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So in these two verses, we see that Jesus willingly submits to the authority of the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. And I only say or speak what I'm commanded by him to say and speak. It's full submission to the Father. Likewise, the Spirit submits to and testifies of Christ. We already read that in John 15, 26. The Spirit whom I will send to you, he will bear witness and testify about me. So Jesus sends the Spirit to testify. He's, the Spirit is sent to testify and witness about Christ. And that is what the Spirit does. So he willingly submits to the Son. Now, even though there's an authority structure within the Trinity, whenever that authority is being exercised, there is at the same time love and encouragement and support that is being shown. Though the Father commissioned the Son, throughout that commission, we find that the Father is in communion with the Son, encouraging Him, supporting Him, even audibly and publicly affirming Him. We, we read of that at His baptism and at the Transfiguration. This is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. He's, he's loving His Son. He's like, yes, Son, I've commissioned you, but I'm not going to just turn my back on you. Like, Tell me when you're done. He, no, he's, yes, I commissioned you, but I'm going to love you all along the way. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to affirm you. And the Holy Spirit does the same. He pours out the Holy Spirit without measure upon Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the comforter, and he was the comforter for Christ as well. So even though there's this authority structure, there is always love and communion and encouragement that is being shown. It's always carried out in the interests of every other person involved. And note, finally, that this authority structure does not in any way diminish the essential equality of the three persons. Christ's willing and cheerful submission to the Father has no bearing whatsoever on his dignity. He is no less God than the Father is God. So just because there's an authority structure, just because Jesus willingly submits to the Father, it doesn't mean that Jesus is less God than the Father. Jesus is just as worthy of our honor and our praise as God the Father is. And just because the Spirit willingly submits to the Father and the Son, sending Him, doesn't mean that the Spirit is like the third tier in the Godhead. No, He's just as much God as the others. So an authority structure has no bearing on the individual's dignity who are part of that authority structure. And we'll stop there. So next week, what we're going to do is, from these three truths that we've considered about the Trinity, we're going to draw some implications of these truths as they relate to the family and as they relate to the church. So again, this was all foundational, and next week we'll start to build upon that foundation.